0: Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. Got a lot of great things in this episode. The main content is going to be Andy talking about...
1: Uh, Education and elements related to education. We'll just say that. The Gathering Storm.
0: A couple of announcements before we get to that thing we always do. You can, through the end of February, go to Apple, leave a five-star rating and a written review, and we're going to give prizes away for that. We're up to 87, I think, the last time I looked, so 13 more holy people need to go over there and uh, fill it out. And then also, we have a special guest next week, Dr. Jonathan Pennington from Southern Seminary, or yeah, seminary. And uh, he has a book, Jesus, the Great Philosopher, that we talk about on next week's episode. And you might want to get it and familiarize yourself with it before you listen to that episode. You can go to the Faith Bookstore and get a copy for 30% off special Thinklings promo discount. You know, go on in and, hey, get that book. It's, It's a great book. And I think the conversation next week, you'll hear a lot of good things about it. So with that being said... We have some thinklings business to tend to.
2: Books and business.
0: That's what I'm talking about. Let's talk about some books.
1: I'll go first. So I'm going to, last fall, I did a series on contentment, and I personally really benefited from that. So I've I've thought, what would I do next fall? I think I want to pick up the topic of holiness. So I've started amassing books, and and rather than trying to read them all in one summer, I'm going to slowly read them over time. So this one is a reread. It's uh, The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. I am five or six chapters back into it. And I would just say that this is a really good book. Um, theologically, you might have a couple quibbles here and there. Uh, but on the whole, it's been a very helpful and challenging book. It's sort of a, I think it would be considered maybe a classic in the field. Um, what I didn't, what, what is interesting about reading it again, and also I'm listening to it as an audio book, which Charlie, I was at Aldi's the other day getting groceries on my way home. I was trying to listen to it, and I had to stop because when you're looking at a list and trying to count, you can't do that. But if you're just cleaning something or whatever, but um, man, I read this probably 10 or 15 years ago, and I did not catch the huge uh, anti Keswick, anti holiness theol like theology. It's like on the nose. I mean, he has this point where he says, after experiencing a great deal of failure with our sinful nature, we're told that we have been trying to live the Christian life in the energy of the flesh. We need to quote stop trying and start trusting. Or, quote, let go and let God. And uh, he gently but directly says this really not what Scripture looks like. So it's interesting. I'm not sure what I'm going to rate it yet because it's been so long. I don't know if I would say I'm going to agree with it or not. But so far it's been, it's been helpful and challenging. So
2: I have been working on my book and Bible study. Um, I'm working through a Bible study actually right now on Thursday nights with uh, several couples, married couples. Uh, this last week, I was having to make some major changes to chapter six with the Bible study. And so I've been thinking through and how to apply better uh, song songs two fifteen, catch the uh, catch the catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines for our vines have tender grapes. And so uh, this passage really just illustrates the importance of of uh, for a couple to enjoy intimacy according to the order of creation, how they need to understand. Uh, confession of sin, uh, repentance, and forgiveness. The gospel is the foundation for a married couple to acknowledge their sin and to forgive one another, which is taking care of the foxes in the relationship. And so that's the foundation for intimacy according to the order of creation. So I don't have a book today because I've been working on a lot of writing, and uh, that's just a little snippet of what I was working on this last week. So that is my books and business.
0: So Tim, you're studying a passage about foxes. What does the fox say, Tim?
1: Th- thank you. Oh so, Were you thinking um, the same thing? My daughter got fox figurines and I kept asking Abby one day. I'm like, what does the fox say, Abby? And she just looks at me.
2: <laughs> so I spent about half a page uh, in the Bible study explaining how it's not actually a fox. It's actually a jackal. So what I usually just read say? the text, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but to avoid uh, a ridiculous conversation, I'm going to fix it and I'll explain to you. It's not really a fox, it's actually a jackal because jackals live in desolate, destroyed places, which is not what you want your intimate relationship with your spouse to be like.
0: That is a meme right there. So someone listening to this, if you want to make a meme, Tim Littleface. What does the fox say? What does the and jackal say? Well, no, it's like the Dwight meme where it's like false. Like, what does it's the a fox jackal. say? False. It's a jackal. Oh, that's a beautiful <laughs> meme. Tim's laughing. Tim's <laughs> laughing. Oh, uh, okay. Anyway, that's good stuff. Man. I'm glad I could be Dwight. You haven't you haven't fun yet?
2: Everybody's favorite character <laughs>
0: in the office. He is one of my favorite. Okay, so um from I don't have a book either today. I have an article. I am doing some research on the idea of censorship. So like freedom of speech and very specifically, should a public library or a public school library restrict the materials that are in it? And so, you know, think that about that for a second. And so I'm doing some study on this and I stumbled across this article uh, from the Association of Biblical Higher Education, also known as ABHE. And uh, it is called "Professional Ethics for Librarians: A Call for Theological Reflection" by this. I've never heard of this guy. His name's Paul Hartog, and um, he sounds
1: vaguely familiar.
0: Yeah, I don't know where I've heard that name before. But anyway, so this uh, Hartog fella, he's he's advocating that a theological framework is actually necessary for the job of a librarian because you you have to have virtue in the task of selecting books and things like that. So I'm just going to read a little portion here. This is on page 75. If you go and find the article, librarianship itself can be viewed theologically as quote, a vocation and not just quote, a profession. So vocation vocative, it calls to you.
1: Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, that's so good.
0: And I think that's probably why it's called that. I'm on it. Anyway, A Christian's approach to library ethics cannot be built upon the value neutrality assumed by many in the profession. So a Christian librarian would have to understand not all books are created equal. There's not neutrality in these resources. A a biblical ethic of librarianship cannot be founded upon mere utilitarianism or pragmatism, moral pragmatism. Moreover, God is concerned not only with moral action— the result of ethical decision making, but also with moral agent character formation within the decision maker. And that is a page right out of chapter, not chapter two, right out of book two of Nicomachean Ethics by Aristotle, that the agency of the one doing the virtue is important. Ideally, back to the, the quote here, ideally professional and ethical dispositions are cultivated as genuine moral character qualities and not merely as facets of an occupational veneer A graduate school of library and information science may grant education and expertise, but a moral habit develops through progressive sanctification. The Christian professional librarian is one dedicated to discipleship, must be committed to transformation as well as information. So I think this is actually in favor of some type of censorship, that a librarian with a proper ethic would understand that certain materials shouldn't be there. Where that gets to be an ethical dilemma is then say, what if you are a Christian librarian at a public or use a better word, government institution, like a university or a public school elementary library. And you don't think that that book, you know, Sally has two mommies should be on the shelf but you can't restrict it. Like, what do you do? Uh, So just interesting to think through in the issue of freedom of... I think I would actually say that, yes, we need to censor materials. But, and that's because of the the virtue of what is there and how it transforms the person reading it. But just interesting thoughts here on uh, librarianship by uh, Paul Hartog. So that's what I'm working on, what I'm reading right now. Andy, you want to give us a, a preview of what's in this episode?
1: Probably for this one, maybe just best to go right into it. We're going to talk about education. We talk about that a lot. And the, the There's a book by Al Mohler, The Gathering Storm, that there's a couple of issues in it that come up, but I think the broader conversation we're trying to have is about education, so I think you'll find it interesting. Let's have a conversation today about culture. Now, if we were really starting on culture, we'd be reading Pieper and Arnold and Barzoon and others. Uh, But today, we're going to go off of a book I was reading a while back uh, called The Gathering Storm by Al Muller. And in it, he talks about secularism, culture, and the church. That's the subtitle to the book. Essentially, what he's trying to do is to talk about the various threats that our culture today is facing from uh, various angles and sources. So, again, this is one of those books where I just read a couple of chapters out of it. And I would say that this is a, a decent book. I've talked about it already on the podcast. It's. Um, It's worth reading if you're at kind of a beginner's level or a middle level of this, uh, this whole topic. But in one of his chapters, he talks about the engines of culture, and I thought that was worth discussing. So today we're going to talk about different fountainheads of culture. I'm just going to read a couple of uh, quotes here at the beginning to get our conversation going. And then I want to talk about a, a few thoughts at the end. I'm going to talk about he's essentially going to lay out the problem. He's going to lay out the fountainheads of culture. Uh, which is to say the sources that create the culture that we live in. Uh, and then I'm gonna, he's going to end on one specific fountainhead. We'll talk about that. And then I want to ask you guys um, a question or two. One of them, I'll just tell you it up front. How can a Christian guard themselves against the influence of these kinds of cultural fountainheads? What we're going to see as Moeller walks us through this is that all of these sources of culture are not merely traditions and behaviors and whatnot. It's actually a moral worldview they're presenting, and it can influence it. So I would say, how do Christians guard themselves against the influences of these different fountainheads? And we may have a few more questions to talk about by the end. All right, so he starts off with this illustration uh, using the book printed in the 1970s called Future Shack. And uh, in the book, they talk about how today in the 70s, culture is changing more rapidly than ever has. And the book says that at a certain point, we're not going to be able to handle it. And so Mueller says, I mean, consider all the things that since 1970 that have changed since this book has been produced. Uh, You have abortion with Roe v. Wade, you have the sexual revolution, all kinds of stuff. He says, now in one sense, just about everyone contributes something to the direction of culture, starting in the home, and then extending outward to civic involvement and engagement with other people. We are culture-making cultures. Building a playground is a culture-producing act. Then he says this, he says, At the same time, given the immense size and scope of our culture, the main drivers of our cultural production are the crafters of the cultural messaging, and the drivers of the culture are indeed powerful. He's gonna walk through four fountainheads, I'm calling them fountainheads, of culture. Uh, The first one is Hollywood, the second one is Wall Street, the third one is Silicon Valley, and the fourth one is colleges or the educational institutions. So he gives a quick overview of Hollywood, and I think Hollywood's probably the low-hanging fruit for us. I think when we think of who's trying to affect the world, we think Hollywood, Hollywood and their View they're presenting of sexual sexual views as normative, uh, speech as normative, uh, entertainment is not like whatever they present. They're trying to present a world that's normal. And so he says entertainment is uh, it drives culture and it possesses enormous sway over of the American society. And I would say it's really intriguing. Um, people watch the Oscars, which is an award show, which is simply Hollywood congratulating itself on how great it is. And most of the time when people make speeches at those award shows, they're very, very moral speeches. Now, when I say moral, I don't mean correct or right. What I mean is they're, they're through and through coming from a moral position about something, even if it's just their world that they're talking about. Um, but this is what Mueller wants to note. He says the powerful, the power of Hollywood rests, um, in this, that celebrities today have a very strong grip on the American conversation. So, think about—can uh, you, you guys think of any examples where Hollywood has power today at a cultural level that it's wielding? Any thoughts to jump off the top of your head? I have a couple of thoughts of my own,
2: but we've seen entered the enter. What was the third point? Hollywood, Wall Street, uh, Silicon Valley. Oh, Silicon Valley. Okay. So with Hollywood, you think through the entertainment industry, uh, I was kind of surprised at some presidential elections in a few years ago anyway, how they would bring these popular singers uh, to these campaigns. I'm like, why in the world are you bringing, you know, so-and-so and having them perform or sing or whatever at this election campaign? And then I read Neil Postman and it made more sense to me. But that's where like these... These um, icons of our culture, from the entertainment industry and from Hollywood, have an amazing, amazingly strong voice uh, within the populace, even in an area where really they shouldn't have any voice, because all they are is an entertainer. They they aren't any kind of an expert in political theory or anything.
0: Yeah, there's a a pretty frequent idea in athletics where it's like uh, stick to basketball or stick to football where, you know, like high level athletes want to spout their political views and because of their popularity or their talent as an athlete, people want to, it's, it is postman. They ascribe more value to that person's system of belief or political statement because of that talent or ability or fame. And so there's, you know, on, on Twitter, you know, stick to stick to sports or whatever is is a common hashtag. And, of course, the athletes come back with, you know, their rebuttals to that. But it, it, it is that idea that someone who's famous, people are going to buy into what they're saying because they're famous. Like, they have a large following for a reason. So you're, you're manipulating fame to espouse a view.
1: Which is, that actually brings me... It's interesting because if you've heard of the fallacy of the expert witness, the fallacy of the expert witness, the expert witness says this is what is true. And you believe that person because they're an expert, which is not unwise to take their view seriously. But at the end of the day, what makes their view right is not their expert status. It's the evidence or argument they present. And so, Like Greg Kochel brings this up in his book Tactics. A lot of times, you'll hear experts, you know, nine out of ten doctors say choose this, you know, toothpaste. But it doesn't matter if a doctor says to choose it. It matters what the reasons are the doctor's saying, and are those right reasons? Hence, you can have a veterinarian saying this is the best toothpaste to use, and he's a doctor, and so they include him in it. But you see what I'm saying? That kind of illustrates the the problem with it. So here, it's almost like. You could add a second fallacy in, in the same family of the fallacy the expert witness and you have the fallacy the famous voice. I'm a doctor. You are that's right Tim you're a doctor. I'm an authority. What's on the best toothpaste. To, what is the best toothpaste Tim? I'm going to mute myself now.
0: Okay. <laughs> Tim doesn't brush his teeth. <laughs> what?
1: You're horrendous. How many
0: how many credits do I have to have to be considered a doctor?
1: Oh, it's it is not the depends credits on
2: the program. <laughs> And a I lot of people have the credits, but they fail to write their dissertation. So oh. that's kind of the bigger
1: hurdle. Yikes! And then some people—close. Some people have very minimal level credit degrees, and they get a
0: Well, isn't it like it's tradition? Like, if someone speaks at a commencement, they're given an honorary doctorate.
1: Not. I don't think so. No.
0: I that I'm pretty sure that's a thing. Like, it's like the only reason I know that right on cue to get us back to where we're at is. Will Ferrell was asked to speak at USC's commencement a few years back, and so technically it's like an honorary, like Doctor Ferrell. Yeah. Wow. I I think go. that's a thing.
1: Maybe that's what I should do instead of getting a doctor. Just and
0: to close his speech, he sang a pop pop culture song. <laughs> but anyway,
1: but so this fits so perfectly. The point of that is yeah. <laughs> why why is
0: Will Ferrell? Yeah, mm-hmm. he is. He's a grad of USC, which that makes sense. Okay. He's a But why why is he giving a commencement address? Yeah. Is it because his ideas are Mm -hmm. like superior, valid, like he should be in that setting, or is it because he's famous and funny?
1: He's famous and funny.
0: And he is quite funny.
1: He is. And we always need more cowbell. Okay, so we have... Basically, what Mueller brings out is a lot of Hollywood uses its extreme uh, popularity and growing authority to back... LGBT issues, worldview issues, and then to push against traditional Christianity and that sort of thing. So I, I think that one we understand. The next one he brought up was really intriguing, Wall Street and the Moral Revolution. So what he, he he starts off talking about the Harvard Business Review, and it's a mainstream publication. He says that it traces economic shifts and it's reshaped American corporate life. He says, unlike People or Vogue, the Harvard Business Review is no faddish magazine. It reports serious developments in American economy, and it represents a centrist reading of American corporate culture. Now, what he's going to point out is that even Wall Street in this area, now, if you think about business, business is business. Like, you can do all the politics you want, but at the end of the day, you got to sell stuff. Um, there are movies that will come out with heavy leftward political agendas, and they won't do well. And then one that comes out with a more right, side-leaning one, and it'll do great, and Hollywood is annoyed at that, and they try to cover it up. So at the end of the day, in some sense, business doesn't care. But here, Moeller notes that even the Harvard Business Review, which has enjoyed a fairly credible reputation as a centrist magazine for a long time, is now capitulating and starting to push these LBGT agendas. Um, so that was intriguing. And I think that you've even seen that. Is there any examples where you've seen businesses take on this political uh, move. Is there any 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 business out there that you could target in your mind that have maybe done something like this? Can't think of any. Can't think of any. Kenya. Yeah, I know. It's kind of a big target. <laughs> it is a big mm. target, isn't it? It is interesting, though. I'm thinking of one of those businesses that when they they made a very open statement of support of some cause. And I like the store enough, and I'm I understand that stores support different agendas. But it was interesting. I think what they thought is they're going to gain popularity and gain more business by taking this position. But for me, someone who did not agree with this liberal position they were taking, what they had done unwittingly is made me feel like if I walk there into their store, I'm actually supporting it. So for a while, I didn't buy nearly as much stuff there. Now, I understand everyone's on the map, all over the map on that. So I'm not trying to get to the point, not to be trying to make the point you need to boycott or anything like that. But I am pointing out that I think he's right. That business is just business, but nowadays business isn't just business. It does seem like there's trying to be a level of influence there. The next one he talks about is Silicon Valley. I think that goes without saying. I mean, the the fact checkers on Facebook have to be the most liberal positions of anything I've ever seen. And I, I don't think we need to prove that one. He gives obviously some really helpful information in there. That's fine. I think Twitter, it's funny, when I go on Twitter... It's intriguing to look at the different social medias. So Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And they all sort of different serve a different purpose. And because of that, they tend toward different types of conversations. I feel like Twitter is the debate world. Like you want to debate things, you go to Twitter. If you want to debate something, you really don't go to Instagram. I don't think. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong on that one. And I don't know what you'd say for the other two. So he makes some good points there, like that section. Go ahead. I would
0: say if you want to debate, you shouldn't debate. In any of those places, actually no. Okay, thank I you. I wouldn't call what happens in the comment section of a social media site debate in any sense of the word. So
1: let me, yeah. Well said, thank you. A point well taken. Let's let's change that from debate to vent. Vent ar- venting. <laughs> oh, I was gonna say argument. Oh, they venting do that all the time. Is even better. That's really good, Charlie. I'm gonna give you two points for venting. That's the word I was. Or looking memeing, for. maybe. Meming venting. Actually, um, outbursts of wrath. I think social media is built for that because you don't have to look in the eye of the person you're outbursting on, uh, in wrath on. All that to say, though, it's not just simply that it gives us a place to vent our wrath. It is also that. But beyond that, it's been very clear that the leaders of these platforms have agendas to push and to change culture. It's not merely that they're providing a fun service to use. They really do want to change agendas. But then the last one, he doesn't even title it higher education. His section's titled, quote, and then they're all mine, quote. And this is a higher education. And so he talks about the way that cultural formation uh, has often begun in higher education. And people sort of understand this. I mean, I think we understand that when you go to a, a college, they're they're going to be pushing a cultural agenda. The intriguing thing is that let me hold on, I don't get the quote here they'll often make the claim that they, won't, they aren't trying to indoctrinate you at all. And so uh, they published this uh, survey of sorts where they realized that, uh, okay, here we go. So writing for a Seattle newspaper, a teacher of English in college at the, and college advisor at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, reveals this ideological agenda in even more shocking terms. Bill Savage reacts to the fact that the so-called conservative red states are outbreeding the blue states, which is red states would be Republicans, blue states would be Democrats, which are more liberal in their voting patterns. Identifying, do you want to jump in? Well, you said outbreeding? Yeah, outbreeding. Okay, gotcha. Bigger families. Yeah. Which, I mean, yeah. It's the
2: order of creation.
1: Yeah. Go ahead. Yep. Uh, okay, so they're 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 having more kids, basically, bigger families. And Savage acknowledges that he and his fellow liberals have a lower fertility rate than conservatives. Now, if you just stop there, then eventually, at some point, it should swing in a red direction, it sounds like. But he says this, he says, nevertheless, he insists that an educated urban liberal need not despair. He expresses his confidence that, quote, blue America's urban archipelago can grow large, more contiguous, and more politically powerful, even without my offspring. And then Al Muller asked the question, how? And the, the, the liberal guy says this, he says, The children of the red states will seek higher education, and that education will very often happen in blue states or blue islands in red states. For the foreseeable future, loyal ditto heads. Now, what's a ditto head? Anyone know that reference? is kind of old. It's like ditto. Like it's the same thing. Da, 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 da. It is, well, that's what a ditto is. It's a Rush Limbaugh reference. Oh, so if you were a fan of Rush Limbaugh back in the day, he would say ditto, and so you were a ditto head. Okay, so loyal dittohead. So conservatives will continue to drop off their children at the dorms after a teary-eyed hug. A teary-eyed hug. Excuse me. Mom and dad will drive their SUV off toward the nearest gas station, leaving behind their beloved progeny. And then Mueller says, "Then what?" He proudly proclaims, and then they're all mine. Now, I thought it was interesting that he 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 goes on to say that liberal colleges will say you're not indoctrinating; they're not trying to indoctrinate; they're just trying to teach. But his point is bigger. When you teach, you always teach out of your worldview. You're always putting on a moral argument. Like you, it's not like an argument, but you're always teaching. You're always discipling people to your moral point of view, or you're being discipled. So as I was reading this, I had a number of thoughts. The biggest one in my mind was Romans 12, 1 and 2 that says, don't be conformed by the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which is intriguing because in that verse, it's not that I'm trying to copy the world, it's that the world's trying to press me into its mold. And as I was thinking back here, these are some of the big areas or places where the world does that. Hollywood through entertainment Wall Street through business and commerce Silicon Valley through social media and basic college education at both Community College all the way up to Ivy League schools So that here's here's your question so then you're watching television or you're at a business deal or you're on Facebook or you're picking a college what are ways Christians can help to defend themselves against the cultural influence of these major, Fountainheads of our culture today. What do you guys think about that? Thoughts?
2: My first thought is to, to go to the wisdom literature. A lot of times people have this idea that the Bible doesn't really have the answers. And um, when they get to like a, a college, a collegiate situation, they're they're presented with arguments they haven't ever heard and uh, they find him very persuasive. But actually, the Bible explains that true wisdom is found in the Lord. Uh, The Lord is the creator of wisdom. He's the one that's created uh, the world. And in creating the world, he created it a certain way, the blueprint, the order of creation. And so the Bible provides the foundation for understanding what's going on in this world. And so as you think through, well, this isn't going the way that I thought it was gonna go, um, well, well, what well, how do we handle that? That's not going the way that we we thought it was going to go. Does that mean that the way I'm thinking about it is wrong? Maybe. Or is the way that I'm I'm thinking about it needs to have the right starting point, it has to have the right foundation. And so I automatically just go to the concept of the fear of the Lord as being the beginning of wisdom. And even when you get to a college, you're like, I don't know, I don't have answers, I'm gonna fear the Lord, and you just keep coming back to, well, I don't know, I'm gonna fear the Lord, I'm gonna fear the Lord, then then that foundation in the word of God and in an ontology first philosophical system, God does exist. I'm going to believe that God exists and I'm going to be searching for the answers even when I don't have the answers. It has to, that, that young person has to have that foundation. And this is where I think a lot of times sending a child off to a collegiate situation like what you've described there is like letting a two-year-old play around in the road. Uh, a lot of times they don't have the wisdom or the discernment, the spiritual maturity to play around in the road. There are rare exceptions, but generally speaking, the parents, I don't know, we have higher expectations or thoughts of our children than we should. And in truth, we really are letting the the three-year-old play around in the road. So those are some incipient thoughts.
0: Yeah, I think they need to have, uh, so if you're, how are they not affected by the culture? There has to be some other culture that is affecting them. And, uh, I think it does go back to kind of piggyback on what Tim just said that a parent would never let their two or three year old, depending on whatever age you want to go with there, uh, play in the road. And, uh, they let them do that. They, they, they don't understand maybe what their, I almost said student, what their kids are capable of and not capable of and like where they might be going, but maybe they overestimate the ability of a student to resist what's happening. And uh, you know, plug this into some of the discipleship discussions we're having where I think parents mistake external conformity for the ability to discern, to really see what's at work inside of them and make appropriate choices knowing what they love. And most young people, do know what they love and they know that they love the wrong things and they're suppressed and conformed to an external standard. This is like the staple of conservative Christianity. It's like they do it, they do it, they do it like they obey, but is it really a a change of who they are? Do they actually love what they're supposed to love? And, if they're not able to do that discernment and that work of transformation and engaging in that. And I will say, if they're not able to do it on their own, you know, under the parents, you know, discipleship in the home, if that student's not taking those steps before they leave for college, honestly, I don't think it matters what college they go to.
1: Yep.
0: They're not going to do it. They're yep. not going to just going to figure it out when they get there, unless there's some really nice loving people there to help them along the way. But, uh, and God's sovereign over that, but, if If they're not able to do that on their own, they don't understand what they love or how to engage with those things, and you send them to a place that is actively feeding the wrong loves, you should not be surprised when they come back with uh, erroneous views. They disregard traditional uh, parts of of doctrine of of uh, orthodox doctrine. Or when they com- completely verge um, in their own character, um, but you know, i I think it's I think it's fair to pinpoint like the colleges, the education as a as maybe a breaking point, but it doesn't start there. So I don't think Mm-mm. it's fair to blame no. a college for what's happening uh, in in a child's you know a college student's life. And uh, I think what we've observed here at Faith is that usually the kids that are doing well when they get here get more tools and continue to progress in what was already happening. And the ones that were not doing well when they got here usually persist in that direction. And there's uh, not a lot of like real radical flips of like this person was about ready to, you know, Wile Coyote off the edge of the cliff and then they flipped it around. Um, but there's a lot of uh, maybe advancing the understanding of what was already happening. I don't know if that makes sense, but th- there's some thoughts there.
1: No, I had the same or a similar thought. I don't think that someone shows up at a secular college to do a, you know, a biochemistry major or something like that. And then suddenly hears new things they've never heard before and walks away. Now that, that does, it that ha- does happen at times, it does. you know, so it does, but I, but I do think in many cases I would agree. It's What's been going on growing up, you've been entertaining yourself at these entertaining venues. You've been absorbing that worldview of whatever it is, and when you show up at the college, you're just seeing the thing that you thought was okay the whole time, and it's drawing, but you're not around all these other uh, checks and balances and helps. So I do think it can cause a problem. I, I do, though, think it does demonstrate because like Tim, you said, it's like you're dropping off a kid and now they're playing in the road. I do think that my, my friend would say it this way. So Pastor Jiraiya, he's doing apologetics doctorate. He loves apologetics. He would say that that's why it's that sort of a ministry is so necessary early on because one of the ways secular colleges get at kids these days, students is with either wrong information or poor information about origins and whatnot. But even that is just a dem- demonstration of what you just said. It's, it was already happening, and it's not that it, nothing at the college influenced it. M- much of it did, but it wasn't all happening at the college. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I do think, and, and this liberal guy who's writing these words saying, hey, just drop your kids off, then they're mine, he wouldn't say that if he didn't really thought, think it was working if it didn't appear to be working. So there's something yeah. to it and it just underscores the importance of those kinds of choices you make for your children or what your children are going to choose at that point in their life it is a choice that's mm-hmm. going to have a big effect on your life children did you have something
0: no i thought you were going to jump in
2: i was i will now <laughs> tim you may speak i uh, you know proverbs chapter 1 talks about how A wise man will increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. Okay, and what are the proverbs of Solomon written to? To give prudence to the simple, to the young man, knowledge and discretion. Okay, so the book of Proverbs is written to young people, to simple people, to guide them in the right path. And and when I see a young person going to like a secular university a lot of times what I'm seeing is you're throwing a simple person mm-hmm. into a group of scoffers and what are the scoffers doing? Scoffers are, who are they? I might, I don't have, we're not gonna, I'm I not going to go through who the scoffer is right now in this podcast. It would be helpful for you to work through book of Proverbs and identify who is a scoffer and then what are they doing and then how do you treat a scoffer? A scoffer is somebody who believes what they believe, and you're not going to persuade them. I might debate a scoffer, but the intention would not be to change the mind of the scoffer. They are um, resolute in their belief system. And the only purpose in debating the scoffer would be to instruct the simple. And so that scoffer, who is extremely skilled, okay, they're at a university. They know what they believe, and you are putting a simple person there. I mean, you're, 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 this is why so many of them leave. So I understand what you're saying, Carter, and I agree with you in that the trajectory has been established. That's why I like working with children's ministries, four-year-old to sixth grade. Mm. They need to start having their devotions and developing a love for God when they're little because that's putting them on the right path. And so then when when they reach that point, they're not simple, or at least as simple. But I still think every, like I wouldn't want to put my son in that kind of an environment because you're basically, I think you're taking the book of Proverbs and you're saying, God, I don't care. I've got, our kid can do it.
0: Yeah. uh, So just to clarify, I agree with everything you just said, but I just don't think it's fair, you know, to, to, well, let's create like a generic character, you know, the generic character who would, are uh, a parent who would send their child to a university and not be aware of the wiles that they're sending their child to. Mm-hmm. I feel like that parent would also be the one that's like, oh, the university got my child. And the reality is, yeah. Yep. You probably failed to disciple your kid the whole time, yep. which made them, not not to say it was a wise choice to send them. In that scenario, it would actually be foolish to send them because they're not ready. But that same parent would be actually the real one at fault who did not disciple, left someone ultra susceptible, and then shipped them off to the place where the world's gonna have their way. You know, and it's not as if a student can't survive that scenario, but. It's like we know this here at a college of, of hundreds that the people that are holding the most influence over students are other students. Mm-hmm. It's their friends. Yep. And so you send someone to a public university and there's literally 20 or 30,000 people who all they want to do is party and sleep mm-hmm. around and do drugs and, you know, make money, be successful, like jump on that train and you just are shocked when your child gets spotted by the world to use James one terminology. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, that could happen. You could have done everything right as a parent and that could happen. But you know, a lot of students end up making choices to go to those schools because their desires are out of check before they even get Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. You know, and if, if it was me and I have the responsibility over a child, maybe someday I will, you know, and I can eat my own words, you know, 25 years from now, but if if I was looking at my own child and was like, you know, excuse the term, but he's dumb, he's simple, <laughs> yeah, or she, he or she, I mean, probably if he's a he, he's gonna be really dumb because he'd be like his dad. But <laughs> if, if I was if I was looking at that,
2: it's not unbiblical. They are simple. The young yeah. man is simple. And
0: at that point, I would I would say, like, I the responsibility is on me to like No. <laughs> you're not going there. Like, Carter,
2: that's exactly it. That's yeah. what I'm saying, is that the parents need to provide that guidance and direction.
0: And so, but then, you know, say, flip it on the other side. Say you have someone who is, you know, a parent did everything right, that, you know, maybe the, that that student is is years ahead of where you might think they would be spiritually, academically, whatever, and you could even make the decision as a parent like okay i'm 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 going to let them do this you know I, I still don't think at that point i would blame an institution for that because you know it's like at the end of the day there's james one they're being enticed by their own desires like you know like yes that that i think it's wise to identify there's a a large percentage of uh of people going to these institutions that are heading to a certain area, you know, theologically, politically, Mm -hmm. whatever. But, you know, I don't know if I could be like, man, those universities, those universities.
1: Well, yeah, I think it would just, I don't know that I would say they're, well, are they doing things wrong? Yes. But they're they're doing what I would do at my university. Everyone's doing this. And so it, it, it is interesting that, Maybe even you are an undiscipled high schooler, let's say, and you know it. What you, you should find a place where you can be discipled in these things and not be enticed. It's funny, Tim, you br- went to Proverbs chapter 1 and my first thought. I thought you were going to go to verse 10 where the mom and the dad are warning the son, sinners are going to come and entice you. These scoffers are going to come and entice you to go away. It's funny when you think about people who live sinfully. How many people who live sinfully openly, then when they meet someone who's more conservative or does not sin in the way they do, like they're more moral, they're like, oh no, don't you do this, don't you do this. I do this, but this is wrong, but don't you do it. It's never that way. It's always, hey, you should come do this with me. It's really great. It, maybe not always. You can't really say always. But it seems like a very natural thing that if you love this lifestyle, you're going to want other people to engage in the lifestyle. And if someone says, you know, don't, then it's like, hey, I want that. I want you to come over to my side. So it's interesting. I, I'm not saying that you shouldn't go to a university, or you shouldn't watch television, or you shouldn't uh, do, you know, commerce in our culture today, or you shouldn't use social media. But I'm guess the question then is like, what do you do? I think a long time ago we were talking about this, and maybe it was a Thinkling's meeting. But so think about if it's like music, and you're like in Walmart, and this really bad song comes on. What do you do? do you, like, plug your ears and run out? No. No, I think maybe you told me this, Tim. Like, sometimes just thinking about it, talking about it, and understanding what's happening is the first step at being able to not fall under the influence of it. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Because I think I'm not, I still don't think, I'm not saying, okay, I'm not saying, let's say it's like, uh, porn. No, no, no. You don't just like, okay, now I know what's going on, so I'm going to watch the porn. I'm not saying that. But but at some level, if you're not aware of what's happening, I think that's what I'm trying to say. This you is, need to be aware. This is getting into what Carter's talking
2: about. Yeah. And yes. this is the difference between sending the simple, naive child mm-hmm. to university and sending the wise the tested older child <laughs> Or young man or adult mm-hmm. into university, okay? I remember talking to one of my professors and how he went through a crisis of faith at the PhD level at the university. And having gone through... Now, you have to understand, he had a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, another master's degree. He was working on another master's degree and a PhD, Okay. And this person was grounded. Of all the people grounded, they were grounded in the faith. And they went through still a crisis of faith. Okay, do you understand the difference? And you're going to send you know, Jimmy off to university? Mm -hmm. All right? Mm -hmm. I mean, just from a wisdom perspective, even if you (laughs) have discipled correctly, all right, even if you have discipled correctly, which most of them, I agree with your point, Carter. I'm not disagreeing with you, but you're still throwing... Uh, a lamb to the lions. See
0: that, maybe that, that's discipled correctly. Does not mean that they go and they make all the right choices. That's not. That's. Not I agree way. with you. But, but they it's have to be Someone able... who's prepared to handle it, like to work through the process. Right. Mm-hmm. Which, and so to to think that a college student in today's age, is eighteen or nineteen years old. Like, I mean, you you could be stinking John MacArthur. I don't care who you are. You're going to send your kid off to college, and they're going to want to do those things.
2: Because, mm-hmm. But okay.
0: the difference between someone who's simple and someone who's trained is understanding how to deal with those desires the biblical
2: way. Right. And so this person, after going through that crisis of faith, you know, I was talking to this person, and this person was at this point just like, Oh, I mean, I mean, I don't think it was an arrogance either. Some would say it was an arrogant thing for the person to say it, but it was just a statement of, oh, I truly believe now. Hmm. And he said, I could, I could go wherever, and I just, like, I wouldn't care. And it wasn't a statement of arrogance. It was a statement mm-hmm. of faith. Mm-hmm. Because of the trial that they had gone through, they truly had understood, and they believed, and they were undaunted in their direction and where they were going. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. yeah. So these mm-hmm. two different yeah. people. I I'm I i do not know if I'm at that level, but I would think that I'm pretty close because of my knowledge of the word and my faith that has grown in the last five years, 10 years. Mm-hmm. I would think I could go into a setting like that. Yeah. And it would, it would just, I would pray, bounce off of me. But there's no possible way I'm going to send my 18, 19, 20 year old son, even if my son has been learning yeah. the desires of the heart like what you're saying
0: well just bring it bring it full circle here and maybe we wrap it up with a couple of thoughts here but it's actually the same reason that when we're talking about you know silicon valley social media famous people it's that same reason that makes sin so popular at the campus it's not because there's one really famous person who's doing it but it's all of these people are doing it. And it, th- that is the appeal of the draw. It, it, it is the popular thing. And you don't want to be left out. You don't want to be the only one yep. who's, you don't want not only the one left out, but are you willing to be the one who's marginalized? Yeah, Like who's looked down upon for not participating in something you've been told not to do.
2: Fear of God as opposed to fear of man. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So, and, and so that becomes the allure is that same popularity, but I would even throw in there that, Whether whether it's at a public university, it's at a Bible college, it's at community college, it's doing whatever. When you move into adulthood, the way that you're going to deal with those desires, the idea that you're going to get to a point where you just aren't drawn by the world is is a lie. Uh, You 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 aren't going to get to a point where that's just not a problem, like where you just don't sin. Like man, that'd be great, but no, not gonna happen. So
2: great.
0: So but realizing the desires, like being discipled and and being trained to engage and look inside at what's going on in your desires and your loves and your motives, that's a part of it. But then I also think where some of those real steps of transformation get taken is in failure. Not necessarily that you went and did the worst possible thing you could and, oh, now I know that's wrong. But (laughs) But when you realize that what you did was wrong, what you said was wrong, what you were thinking was wrong, what you were loving was wrong, and there's an active engagement into repentance of the, the wrong, like there's that humbling taking place. That's where the real the real change is happening. And so I think even, you know, we, we've been directing, like if you're a child listening to this, a high school student, I mean, if you're a parent listening to this, it's like, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater maybe in your, your children's discipleship, like they're going to fail and they're going to fail because we're all depraved. Mm. (laughs) That's right. You know, like there's, there's never a point of external (laughs) obedience where they're going to be free of their sinful nature. Mm -hmm. And it you might try to make them look pristine on the outside, but there's something more important, you know, like, yeah, there's going to be obedience that follows the desire, but, there's going to be failure in how you, you know, maybe the right word would be like coaching. That's a very similar term to maybe discipling, but the way that you're discipling or coaching someone through when they do love what they're not supposed to love. And you might see that they love that thing they're not supposed to love because they did something, or they might just be like, man, why do I want this? They might have never acted upon it. They've been obedient externally in that sense, but they know. There's something wrong internally. Well, what do you do in those moments? Well, either, either or, you know, you went to the party, you got drunk, you slept around, you did the whatever, or you didn't ever do any of those things, but you wanted to. In God's eyes, there's no difference, you know. And so, how do you coach someone through that moment? And either, either one, it's humbling and repentance. So, uh, and, and so I think that you know, if you're a parent listening to this, like, you know, I don't know what I don't know what might. <laughs> Jump out of a of a podcast like that, like, well, I can never send my kid there. Or, man, what if I did? Was that wrong? You know, what should I be doing to prepare my kids? And, you know, if you train them to walk in humility in in their regard to their own sin, they're going to be prepared no matter where they go. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know.
1: I think the, the fear of the Lord is what would carry you in all those areas. I think I think back to middle school when the temptations were really strong to go with the wrong crowd. And the Lord was really kind to me and he gave me a group of friends at my church. And so I hardly hung out with the high school students and I spent a lot of time with my friends from church. And what that did is while my heart was still sinful and wicked, of course, but I was, I was with other believers who loved the right things and that really helped. So even like maybe just not living in the dorm, <laughs> you know, like getting an apartment with other Christians. Um, but being, around other believers who love the Lord, I think that's, you can't underestimate how valuable that is.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings podcast.